Bloodbath and Beyond, Episode 11. I'm Casey Lee Mitchell. And I'm Burton Cody. And today, you might be asking yourself, what's that screaming? A good many dramatic situations begin with screaming. Well, my friends, they're screams of delight, because today we are talking about Barbarella. It's action and horror, it's horror and action, it's Bert and Casey, it's Casey and Bert. That you just heard was our brand new theme song. That's right. Yeah, we have a theme song now. Uh, contributed by to us by friends of the show. Uh, it was written and performed by the lovely Brittany Cannon whoop, whoop. and produced by her by her uh, band compatriot uh, Brian Crouch, collectively known as Brit and the Beard. Mm. Thank the I I want to thank them so much for uh, contributing this thank to us. Thank you so much, y'all. It does mean a lot to us. It helps our show grow by leaps and bounds and carries us that much further away from potential cease and desist letters once people get to know the show uh, for yeah. using copyrighted music. <laughs> well, um, we will be getting to Barbarella, but there's other interesting news. Uh, Silly. In the, in the world of, like, you know, just the way we watch movies, what it means. Uh, well, you know, as of November 9th, 2013 uh, Blockbuster has rented its last ever title. They're shuttering all of their stores nationwide. Yeah, the end of an era of horrible policies and late rental fees and really irate uh, clerks. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I one of my first jobs was in a video store. It, it wasn't a Blockbuster. I mean, I, I worked in a store called... Uh, Hollywood Video, and it changed its name to Video Update at some point, mm. um, but it, it didn't last very long, uh, you know, for me as a job or as an institution, uh, and I remember, you know, a lot of irate customers came to our store right at the time where Blockbuster had done their, like, their waiving the late fee thing that they tried, they hoped would be the sea change. Yeah, but it wasn't really the case, and Blockbuster got sued it, for that. Yeah, it was... It was really a bunch of BS. It was a really bad policy, and it didn't help them in the the tidal wave of Netflix and increasingly digital distribution. Yeah, I think I think it started to fall like a little over ten years ago. Uh, the founder of Netflix even even mentions explicitly in uh, the story of why he founded the company that he was outraged when he returned a copy of Apollo thirteen to to a uh, blockbuster and owed forty dollars. <laughs> so that, that sounds like so blockbuster, they, yeah. And they generated their own demise. I mean, but, but you know, I, it does merit saying that there was a certain magic in going to Blockbuster back when that was the only delivery system in town. Well, I, I guess maybe I'm kind of a unique case because I we know, I think we used a Blockbuster for like a period of a year or two after my childhood uh, video store. It was like a mom and pop store closed down. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny, I mentioned Blockbuster, but I mainly remember uh, when I was a kid, I the local Farm Fresh used to have uh, videos they would rent out. Yeah. They'd have like a whole section of just VHS tapes, and that was my primary rental source. Yeah, there, there was a magic to uh, walking into a video store, and I pretty much always gravitated towards the horror and action sections, because they had like great mm -hmm. cover art, and then you turn the back and have like maybe something kind of bloody on the back, or... All these fixations I've carried on to adulthood. Absolutely. I I always fondly remember just these incredibly vivid-looking cover images. And it's funny, as a kid, I was horrified of watching any of these movies. To the point where, more often than not, I didn't. I'd just come every week and look at those covers again and just imagine the contents. And, you know, and I sort of learned to my disappointment or my delight uh, that these movies never quite lived up to the incredible picture I made in my head as a kid of what they'd be about. Because, you know, these, these would be incredibly rendered pieces of artwork that would show... That would show monsters or situations that never even happened in the film yeah or um it was just like you held these movies and you know when you're at a young age it's like they're forbidden so they're even more interesting i mean nine times out of ten they're probably something terrible uh i i loved anything that had like a picture of like skeletons on it it was like those really painted <laughs> really well painted ones and then you'd probably see the movie and it had nothing to do with the skeleton or it was nothing as cool but sometimes Sometimes it would, and you know, and that would be that would be its own delight. Yeah. The times where it did live up to the hype, even a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, and that's I mean, that's obviously why we have a show today. I mean, or any day. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, but but you know, uh, I do want to say though that Blockbuster going under doesn't necessarily spell the end of the video store as a as a thing. I mean, there's still some mom and pop stores around the country that are kind of thriving even in the face of Netflix. But I think they owe a lot to having a more diverse collection of you know classics and not just the hottest thing that just came mm-hmm. out. And uh, you know, and different policies that work better for people that aren't necessarily about late fees, or, or uh, you know, or just that they're a bigger part of the local community. Like, I mean, here we have the narrow expanded video, which is connected to uh, the narrow theater, and they have a really extensive collection that uh, has kept them in business and will continue to. And in fact, I believe they even before Blockbuster made this announcement, they have a they have a humongous sign made out of like destroyed Blockbuster cards that are all cut up to spell out letters like R.I.P. Oh yeah, I, I visited the store. I was lucky enough to visit it, and uh, I was able to witness the grandeur. So I, I think I think the video store as an institution is not necessarily dead. I mean, it's it's definitely not the way that people prefer to it, get their media anymore. I mean, we have so many streaming options and video on demand and torrents that I don't I don't think anybody like it's not as sacred a weekly rite of passage anymore to go to a video store. No, uh, you can find some if you live near like chi- uh, a like a Chinese neighborhood and you know, there like Chinatown video stores. Are still thriving. That's how the way a lot of guys were able to see uh, a lot of kung fu movies, the dicing uh, videotapes. Yeah, and that, uh, yeah, DVDs at least erased uh, the "be kind, rewind" policy. That was pretty nice. Oh, that was yeah. yes. Um, that was a huge deal too, man. And I, that's that's around the time I started working at the video store, and I remember people always saying, "I'm so glad nobody charges me a little fee for not rewinding my tape anymore." You know? Yeah. Like, but then the DVDs would be horribly scratched, or like it was like chicken grease or something was on it. I always had that seemed to have that problem. Deep gouges that yeah. would skip. Uh, you know, Blu-ray kind of eliminated that problem though, because you ha- you deliberately have to try to harm a Blu-ray to do any damage to it. Yeah, uh, Blu-rays are wonderful, and I really hope they help keep the physical media thriving. Uh, video stores, I wanted to say this, it kind of reminds me of how, kind of the way like arcades have gone. They're still there, but you hardly ever hear about people going to them anymore. And though now all of our gaming is console and PC-based solely. you know. And if you want to play with other people, you just jack in online. And you know that's you know the way Netflix is. Yeah, it was really nice to have those places growing up. Yeah. But it, I mean, I, I'm part of the problem too. After a certain point, I never went to blockbusters anymore because I had all these convenient ways. And if I wanted to find an obscure movie, I could buy it for five bucks on Amazon, and they'd send it to my house in two days. You know, like so I, I didn't need that delivery system anymore, and I didn't need the fees, and I didn't need a timetable by which I could watch it. And you know, so that it kind of outdated itself. Yeah, and before Netflix. They had, what, pay-per-view, and those were outrageously expensive for the time. And I didn't know anybody who ever got a pay-per-view movie. I mean, maybe it was like a wrestling or boxing event, and that was about it. Um, I, I will say I watched quite a few wrestling events on ah, pay-per-view. Right. <laughs> but uh, but I'll also say that the relative who helped me do that had, had some uh, devious ways that existed in the 90s, and I'll say no more about it. Oh, Lord. <laughs> unmarked that's right uh but hey let's jump into this week's feature yeah uh we are talking about barbarella the roger veda movie starring jane fonda uh it was made in 1968 and was based on a french comic book of, of which right. i've never read uh i i actually read it this week in preparation for the show okay. um it, and I, I knew I'd known a little bit about it before this. Um, it's by an artist called Jean Claude Forest. Uh, Jean Claude Forest uh, was prior to this comic mainly known for doing illustrations in a French magazine called Fiction. Uh, Fiction was the French edition of the fantasy and sci-fi magazine, which is really famous for having published a lot of the great authors of the you know either genre. Um, so he did illustrated editions of pulp stories, more or less, and he was approached by uh, the French magazine V Magazine in 1962 because they wanted him they wanted him to give them sort of like a campy sci-fi comic starring a pretty girl. Um, so 
Forrest delivers them this... It's a, it's a strange comic. I mean, it's also a strange movie. But the comic is... It's always, like, eight-page... Eight like, it arrives in eight-page spurts. Mm. Um, usually about uh, the, the blonde, intrepid heroine who is in constant state of undress. Yeah, she's uh, modeled after... Uh... Brigitte Bardot, the the French actress, that's, who's that's right. ironically was briefly married to the director of this movie. Oh yes, uh, yeah, it's very <laughs> that is a very strange turn of fate. Yeah. Um, and in the comic book, it, it's very similar to what we'll talk about in the movie. But like, there there's never a situation that Barbarella finds herself in. And, and I should say, it is it is all sci-fi romps. She constantly has a ray gun in her hand, and she's traveling through space and meeting aliens and robots. Yeah, I mean, by this but, time, like, Buck Rogers was considered even, like, passe. That's right. That's right. Um, but this comic isn't kind of important, because it sort of shepherds in the, uh, the European comic sexual revolution. Like, following the success of Barbarella... Uh, you saw a lot more... Co- like, France had a huge boom in these kind of comics, which extended out to Italy and eventually to the Americas. In France, you had comics like Barbarella, The Adventures of Joe Dell, mm-hmm. um, a few other big ones. And then, you know, and that and then that translated to things in America like Vampirella, uh, which, you know, were, were sexual at a time where sex was definitely a taboo and we're you know like america was still experiencing congressional hearings over violence and yeah these are very much underground for their time Absolutely. but yeah like like heavy metal magazine yes this is this movie I, that, reminded me a lot of in fact um some of the barbarella stories were translated in heavy metal okay oh well uh, they, under the title of uh, barbarella and the moon child which is the third volume of the series it's only it's only four books long uh, but generally speaking, the average Barbarella plot is that she would she would find herself on an alien world. She'd be threatened by something. She'd be rescued by somebody, and usually reward them with a sexual favor. <laughs> it was it was never really shown like it, it was always implied indirectly. Yeah. Or she would make like a lot of she'd make a lot of like catty, like sexually suggestive remarks. Or I remember there was one story where these these robots board their ship. And they like they they immediately shoot her with a disintegrator ray that melts all her clothes of off, and, and like the male on the ship is you know uh, is very mortified by this, but she's like whatever. This isn't the first time an alien race has seen my nudity. <laughs> like she's very blasé about it. Well, so she's a she's a sexually liberated woman in space. Yeah, I mean these comics were probably specifically targeted at preteen boys in the sixties. Oh, I mean yeah. that that was their market. That that's who was buying this. Pretty much comics in general. Uh, oh yeah, and, but you know, you know, and I guess it was kind of just the difference of seeing a a sexually liberated character, and I think that's that's probably the appeal in having made this movie too. Yeah. So so moving right on to the film. Yeah, uh, the movie opens up with Barbarella uh, undressing out of a spacesuit, a clunky spacesuit, and she's totally naked. And it, yeah, this is. This is her like zero gravity burlesque routine. Yeah. She's, I mean, like the title, the title uh, credits sometimes roll around to cover up bits of nudity. Yeah, uh, her naughty bits are mostly covered up by uh, strategically spinning letters from the titles. Yeah, it doesn't look like the most comfortable sequence though, because even though I can't see the wires, you know, there's a lot of wire work involved. Well, apparently, it was filmed with uh, Fonda lying on top of, like, a plexiglass thing. And it was filmed from the bottom up, and then it just sort of, like, flipped. Or they just, it just It's like an illusion to make it look like she's floating straight at the camera. Okay. But instead, we're looking at her from underneath, from where she's sitting. So it, it worked out well. Uh, funny enough, like, <laughs> think about the, the other space movie from 1968 was 2001. Just like totally opposite movies uh, came out around this time. This might that might be a part of the explanation as to why this movie bombed so severely in America. Yeah, uh, I mean it. It'll, it was a huge hit in Italy, which should surprise no one. No, but... not not at all. Uh, but I mean, going along with like the story, uh, Barbarella is greeted by what is it, the president of the Earth, I think, mm-hmm. and he tells you you got to find this one guy. His name is Duran Duran. 
he's this mad scientist. He's in his mid twenties. Uh, he's built this ray that could fall into the wrong hands. We want you to go take the positronic yes, ray. The positronic ray. We want you to go go into this planet in the Tau Teti Tau Seti uh, region to uh, space to nab him. Yeah, that's right. Because on Earth, Earth. It's this. First of all, this is the year forty thousand. Yeah. So so Earth is now a peaceful planet. Weapons are unheard of. Um. And so they're just worried what what will happen in the Tau Ceti region if he gives them the positronic ray and what these what these rogues and these bits of uncharted space will do if they're given it yeah. and what it would mean for the Earth. So they so Barbarella seems to be sort of a in the comic she was an outlaw. Mm-hmm. Um, in the movie she's sort of like a troubleshooter for the government. Yeah, I thought she was kind of like a secret agent. She's kind of like a space female James Bond. In a way, I mean, especially in the way like she just seems to meet some random guys and she's into them and they have sex. Uh, and, pretty much, uh, but you know, generally style. speaking, she gets the better of them, though. I mean, it's it's very much like it's very much the James Bond, but from the other perspective. Yeah. Uh, but in the movie, like she goes. This is the beginning of kind of her just her bizarre little adventure she goes on. She stops off on this ice planet where these these oddly speaking alien children greeter capture her with a snowball <laughs> and <laughs> well, they, they put they put a diamond yeah that's in right it. they put like <laughs> a diamond whack her in the head and they have they decide to torture her to death with these steel tooth uh dolls to Lights. bite her to death yeah they're they're the they're really unsettling looking dolls too. They're all blue faced like they've frozen to death. Yeah, it looks like something out of a really bad Stuart Gordon movie. They're all they they have these just giant like metallic chompers like Jaws from James yeah, Bond. Yeah. And they're just they kind of, they're kind of like wind ups. So they're just wandering slowly and screaming. So of course they bite off her clothes before she's rescued by this caveman looking guy who calls himself the Catcher. Yeah. And this is where uh, we learn about how sex is done on earth that's right uh because you know naturally i mean she wants to reward the catchman for saving her um and you know she uh, this is the first of many times that she initially suggests I, i'm sure i can get you a big recompense from my government <laughs> and they always go no that's not what i want Barbara, i would like to make love to you and then she like holds up her hand because on earth they make love by having they take like a pill i think and the, and yeah, they have they, t- they take a pill and their and their psychocardiograms must be in perfect harmony. Yeah, uh, but he wants he insists on doing it the old fashioned way, and once they do, Barbarella agrees. She much prefers that to the old to the uh, new old fashioned way. This is the first time we see Barbarella humming to herself very happily. Yeah, she's she's very she's a very satisfied woman. Yeah. 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 Um. The, the the Earth version of sex, by the way, uh, it, it bears saying like in the, the the way Barbarella spells it out, she's like, well, you know, no one has done no one has done it that way in centuries. It's too distracting. Uh, we we press our palms together and 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 we just use that to boost our egos. We don't need all that messy sex yeah. stuff that that the poor people do. Yeah. Poor people still do that, but that's because they can't afford the pills and to sync up their psychocardiograms. Yeah, um, was that mentioned in the comic book? That kind of lovemaking. Uh, briefly, briefly. But but she's. I mean, pretty much from the beginning of the comic, she's down for the old country way, uh, as Iron Sheik would put it. Yeah. Well, what is, what's the character's name again? Uh, the are you talking about the Catchman? The Catchman. Yeah. He eventually like does a couple repairs to her spaceship. She kind of flies for a second and then crashes through the ice planet and ends up in like this crazy labyrinth looking place and she's greeted by this uh angel man who happens to be blind played by john philip law who many of you will know as danger diabolic right it's in the same year oh that was the same year oh yeah he's the extremely gangly thin uh actor He's, he's, he's such like a classic like yeah this is what they would think of their action stars and Europe in the 60s like mm-hmm. it wouldn't quite fly over here at the time like we're more like Lee Marvin and uh 
Charles Bronson kind of people at this he's, time. He's very European looking. Yeah, he's he's crazy European. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to say, but you look at him like, okay, he's a European action star. He was even in uh, one of my favorite uh, Sinbad movies, uh, The Golden, yeah, Golden Voyage. Voyage. Great uh, Ray Harryhausen effects. Maybe a future episode. And uh, in one of my favorite. Uh, awful direct-to-video horror movies, uh, Night Train to Terror, which will definitely be a future episode. Yeah, uh, I, they played that on Halloween this year on Turner Classic Movies. I was very happy to see it. Man, man, that's Turner Classic Movies. They're really stretching their definition with that one. <laughs> they, they, they played Story of Ricky a few months ago. <laughs> right, I, I can appreciate I, that. I, I think it's a classic movie, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, so in this movie, uh, the angel's name is Pygar. Yeah. But he's lost his will um, to fly. Pygar, as we've learned, yes, yeah, he's lost. yes, his 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 eyes were destroyed by the great tyrant, yeah. um, and he's lost his will to fly. Um, so so he can't just fly her out of this labyrinth, which is which is largely made up of like primitive people who've lost their way or were government dissidents. But they all look like they're wearing um, these uh, sort of Greek mythology costumes or something. Maybe they. They probably got him off of like a Hercules movie being made next door because this is made in Italy. Yeah. And uh, there's what's his name, Doctor Ping. Yeah, Professor. Yeah, Doctor Ping. Doctor Ping, who has like the craziest hair. Yeah, he kind of looks like uh, the the imp Pan from Greek mythology. That's who I kept thinking of. Yeah, or like, or like you know what you'd, what you'd imagine Daedalus from the Icarus story looking like, or something. Yeah. Oh, he has this weird uh, medical device, too, that he keeps... It's like a bottle that he straps to his forehead that apparently helps him see better. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that. Um, but he insists that he can repair her ship, and so... It might take some time, though. So she's determined that she's she's got to get to the ta- to the uh, to the kingdom of Sogo, which is the city that she was also told about by the Catchmen. Yeah. Um, and she needs to do it now, because that's where Duran Duran is. Yeah, but uh, this is also, I think, one of the first times we see black guards, or these hollow robotic guards from who work for uh, the Tyrant. Who are also referred to as, you know, the uh, very S&M term, the Leatherman. Oh yeah, the Leatherman. <laughs> uh, this movie does have some S&M stuff here and there, actually quite a bit of it. Um... Pygar rescues Barbarella from it. That's a, that's such an awkward sequence too, because he's blind. She drops her gun. He's like on the ground. She goes, "No, Pygar, a little to the left, a little to the right." <laughs> and then he shoots the he shoots the leather man and explodes. Yeah, that's actually a pretty <laughs> cool little effect. Like they clearly had just this ceramic hollow dummy that they just blew up. And it looks like it looks like a leather daddy version of Robbie the robot from Lost in Space. Yeah, kinky Robbie the robot. Yeah, it's yeah, and so uh, Barbarella, she kind of uh, kills two birds with one stone. A, she thanks Pygar, and B, she gets him his will to fly again by making love to him. We don't we don't see that sequence, by the way. It's just that we we see her in his his house, yeah, it, which is also a large bird's yes. nest, and she's covered in feathers, and she's humming and humming. Yeah, <laughs> and and we see his we see the shadow of him flying over her humming body. You never know what the love of a good woman will do. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so she has inspired him to fly again. Yeah. So they fly to Sogo, uh, which is the capital the tyrant which is it's just weird because i guess it's inside of this planet that she crashed through it's really strange yes. uh, I, I i like that it's really psychedelic and uh even when uh barbarella like looks through uh, like her viewfinder on her spaceship it's always like a lava lamp like zoomed in really closely like there's all this sometimes they they take that to excess sometimes though like there's like a two minute sequence of her just looking at psychedelic patterns yeah i mean this movie had this movie had a bit of a resurgence in the 90s when when um howard stern said that he liked watching this movie on lsd in his autobiography apparently so oh well uh i'm sure he's not the only one well pygar and barbarella end up on sogo the capital and they encounter all sorts of like odd people sitting around doing drugs what? not just any drugs like you need to specify <laughs> when you say they're doing drugs because there is a 
what I remember most vividly is that there is a man swimming around in like a giant bong looking thing full of green fluid. It looked like he was being boiled or something. He was in his underwear, and all these women are sitting around, and she's like, oh, what are you doing? We're smoking essence of man. There's uh, Barbarella and Pygar sort of like end up in this weird suicide chamber. It reminded me of uh, that episode. Maybe, is it the first episode of Futurama? Yeah. Where Fry goes into like a, a suicide booth. It's actually kind of like this. And then there's like this it, weird... It's, it's, I think it's called like, what, the ultimate solution chamber? Yeah. And they realize they've been locked into it, and some woman's just committed suicide, and they're next. And there's and you you get you get three choices. It's like what's behind door number one, two, or three. You don't know until you choose. Yeah. And if you don't choose, the floor will open up, and you'll be eaten by this evil sentient ooze called the Matmus. Yeah. Does doesn't the Matmus have like a, a woman's voice? It has some kind of voice. It's it looks like lava lamp fluid painted black but like i kind of like the matmus because it's again it's a touch of weird fiction well you know what matmus is that's the company that built the lava lamp ah well there yeah, you go so I, I guess it's a little joke but they do get rescued by this sort of odd little concierge guy and a bunch of leathermen and they're taken to meet the tyrant mm-hmm. oh wait we've already seen the tyrant though before this haven't we because well, well she was she was in the labyrinth as a um she, she had, she was wearing uh, this really weird outfit of like she had an eye patch and this, what I can only describe as like a clamshell over her crotch. Yeah, and like little. But but like she's but she's wearing it over like a full spandex bodysuit, and she stabs two guys with like her little switchblades to rescue Barbarella, and then immediately is like, I, you could have me. You wouldn't even have to pay. <laughs> she keeps calling Barbarella pretty, pretty. Pretty, pretty. That's not my name. I'm Barbarella. <laughs> Actual line of dialogue. Yeah. Uh, with wonderful delivery by Jane Fonda. Uh, oh, I'll get, we'll get to that later. Like, why I really love oh, yeah. her performance in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, it's not really just about her, oh, she gets naked and everything. Like, It's actually pretty clever. But we are introduced to the tyrant who ends up being, yeah, this woman we just mentioned who saved Barbarella with the eye patch. who... She she's the black queen of this of the kingdom of Sogo. Yeah, so. She's the great dictator, yeah. uh, and she has this weird unicorn horn <laughs> that looks like like plexiglass. Yeah, I couldn't tell if that was. I guess that was part of her body that she just has a big horn in the middle of her head. But she she didn't have it before with the iPad, so it's just I guess part of the wardrobe. I don't know. It's the the year forty thousand is a strange thing. Yeah, like uh, and all of it is very sexualized, you know. Uh, costumes, everything, and even when uh, Barbarella, Barbarella and Piger, I think they get separated by the tyrant. A net, yeah, a net. A net, a net just comes under Pygar and drags him away, and the concierge's like, "Don't worry about that." He's going to be the tyrant's plaything, while mm-hmm. Barbarella is going to get pecked to death by a, a bunch of birds. <laughs> when, when they pop out, she's like, "Oh, birds." Well, I thought, man, I was like, okay, they put her in a cage shaped like a giant bird. Yeah. They're going to feed her to, like, giant giant birds or something like vultures. Yeah. No, these are straight-up parakeets. Yeah, they're really cute. And even Barbarella <laughs> thinks so. And, and she has a line like, this is too much a poetic way to die. <laughs> I don't understand the poeticness of it, but just watching watching Jane Fonda act against... Hundreds of parakeets landing and just sitting limply on her shoulders. Real birds. Yeah, probably just eating like little bits of peanut butter and bird seed off of her. Yeah. But of course, they they manage to, they do manage to tear strategic pieces of clothing as they of as they nibble. I think by this time she's probably changed her outfit like three or four times. Every person she meets gives her a new outfit. That's true. It, it's like a video game. Like she gets a new skill and a new outfit. And the costume design of this movie is fantastic. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I'll, I'll it's, it's classic later. and it's eye-catching, yeah. Just kind of getting through the story here, but Barbarella does get rescued by this guy named Dildano. Swear Dildano. to God, that's his name, Dildano. And, and he's a character from the comics. He does exist. This was always intended. Yeah. <laughs> and he ends up being like, he's like the leader of a resistance movement, and he gets Barbarella in on the resistance to overthrow the tyrant. And he... And we find out all about this chamber of dreams where the tyrant sleeps. It's the only place you can attack her where she's vulnerable. 
Uh, uh, and the only... <laughs> Dildana wants his reward, though. Yes, his reward is to make love with Barbarella. In the earth. And she is she is down. She wants to do it like the way she's done it with Pygar and the Catchmen. But Dildano, that's that is not his plan. No. Oh no, he's he saved up for years. He bought those earth pills. He's been waiting, <laughs> he's, he's been waiting five years to do it the earth way. That's right. He wants that he wants that earthling way. Uh <laughs> So, and and Burrell is so reluctant because she's like, no, no, I refer. It'll be fine if we do it your way. I don't want to put you out. And he's like, no, please. This is all I've ever wanted. Yeah. So they have this um, pretty hilarious like Earth love scene. Well, we get to see how it's done. It's it's kind of awkward because like for two minutes they're kind of just staring into each other's eyes and shivering. <laughs> like they like they're like they're. Their expressions are comatose, but their eyes are locked and their hands are locked. And they just keep like they keep thumping around like they're on dryers. Um, but she she kind of finishes and gets satisfied and kind of lets go of him and just sees him still sitting there waiting. Yeah. And, and like, okay, fine, and goes back and his hands are smoking and his hair flies up like with the craziest sex hair you've ever seen. So he gives her like an invisible key to get inside the Chamber of Dreams. But mm-hmm. before... Because cause Dildano's the leader of like the rebel forces. He wants to overthrow the tyrant. Yeah, because you know, she's, well, the tyrant. And then she runs into Barbarella, leaves, and then she's captured by the concierge. Mm-hmm. And the concierge reveals himself to be none other than Duran Duran. Has... And it does bear it does bear mentioning, by the way, that Dur- the band Duran Duran did get the name of their band from this. Yeah, character. it was it was funny to keep hearing that over and over. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this is and this was one of their favorite movies. Apparently, so. well, they have they even have a song called Electric Barbarella. That's right, one of their hits from the nineties. Yeah. But Duran Duran uh, has revealed that he has been aged by the Matmos. The Matmos, which feeds on evil intentions. Yeah. So it's it's aged him 40 years. That's why she wouldn't have recognized him. Yeah, he's supposed him. to be like 25 or something. And so he throws her into a kind of torture thing. It's called the excessive machine to kill her. <laughs> and it's like, uh, is anyone, if you've seen the movie Sleeper, it's like the Orgasmatron from that movie. Or Woody Allen. It is... It's a okay. You all you can see is Jane Fonda's head, yeah, and her giant head of hair. Um, she's, you can tell, and it like pulls her clothes off. I mean, it, she's covered like from the chest up, like. Well, she's shoulders. Up. It's like a giant. It's a giant pipe organ. Yeah, he keeps like the more he plays the organ, it keeps giving Barbarella more and more love pleasure. Well, can we talk about behind the behind the machine? There is a mound of corpses and clothing yeah. from where, like where apparently he has pleasured other people to death. Yeah. The average person cannot handle it because she's like, oh, it feels kind of good. He's like, everyone says that at first. Then it feels too good. But I guess it wasn't calibrated for Barbarella because she totally overloads the machine and blows it up with her, <laughs> her power of her, uh, her ecstasy and... With, with her, with her soft orgasm faces yeah. and slight moans, and just yeah, she's she's insatiable. The machine can't keep up. Which I imagine was incredibly uh, scandalous at the time. It, it, and I think the funniest scene in the whole movie. It is pretty funny, yeah. The the way uh, it's funny. it's played, it's played strictly for laughs. Yeah. It's not as salacious as it I mean. Sounds. It's keeping in tone with the rest of the movie, which is a, it's a silly movie. Um, this right. does lead to you know kind of the conclusion. I mean that that is her James Bond torture machine. Yeah. It's 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 like Bond having the laser pointed at his crotch by Goldfinger. It, ca- it kind of reminded me of the uh, like the steam machine from Thunderball, which has like a death setting on it. I always thought was ri- ridiculous, but uh, I mean this this is Lady James Bond in space. Yeah. Uh, well, Barbarella escapes, or no, she she flees to the Chamber of Dreams to get to the Tyrant. And then Duran Duran traps her in there. She has to use, like, an invisible key. And that was kind of a little funny scene where uh, Dildano's putting the invisible key over and they have to pantomime it. Once Duran Duran traps them in there, he decides to declare himself as the new tyrant. Yeah. And, and, uh, and he's going to use his positronic ray to kill all of the rebels. Including Dildano. Yes. Uh, and Barbarella? And the great tyrant join forces are able to escape the chamber, uh, and thwart, and thwart the plan of Duran Duran. Well, they do this by the tyrant releases the Matmos, and it wreaks mm-hmm. havoc all over the planet, and it kills uh, Duran Duran. 
but it spares the tyrant and Barbarella and even Pygar because it <laughs> recognized the inner goodness of Barbarella and they just, well, they fly off. And <laughs> all the horrible things, like taking away his eyesight and everything, Pygar seems to have forgotten it because, as he says, an angel has no memory. Yeah, that's, that's his justification for saving the great tyrant at the very end. And I, I still don't really get that line, but whatever, Pygar, I'm going to give you this yeah. one. I mean, I, all right, but, you know, general opinions on the movie, I really like it. It's, it's yeah. entertaining. It's totally 1968. Well, let me say, this is my first time seeing this movie. Yeah. Like, this is a movie I knew by reputation. Like, this was, it was, I, I would look at, like, a lot of video catalogs. Uh, video catalogs, that's another, you know, throwback to the time of video stores. <laughs> yeah, really. But it, this was always treated like such a not-for-kids triple x kind of movie and it I, it's kind of a i PG. thought this was going to be yeah well it's there's there's plenty of nudity but by, like by european standards in that time even that's it's nothing mm-hmm. um but i i really thought this was going to be an incredibly salacious experience um but all of the sex all the actual sex is off screen yeah um we we do see jane fonda you know and in, in her and in her nude form a lot in the film yeah uh, you, you do have silly scenes like the, you know, the um, the excessive machine uh, and her insatiable desires. But mainly, this is a movie that is made up of cheesecake. It's the sexuality in it really is no different than the average James Bond film. Mm. It's just that we have a female in that role. And she's very and, much enjoying it. <laughs> that's yeah. right. And, well, and you know, I mean, the MPAA is sort of infamous uh, in its treatment of of sex, especially sex, to this day, especially sex that shows female pleasure. Yeah. Like, women women are permitted to have sex on film, but they're not supposed to enjoy it. Um, or or uh, uh, cunnilingus. Yeah, yes. the other one, uh, but not that one, on film. That's right. Uh, yeah, you can you can show fellatio all you want. Um, you know, uh, Vincent Gallo can put out The Brown Bunny, which is a movie that he apparently made just so that Chloe Sevigny would give him oral sex at the end of the movie on camera. Oh, yeah, she actually did. I haven't seen it. And I, I know Roger and, well, Ebert said it was the worst movie to ever play at Cannes. It's, it's supposed to be incredibly pretentious, and I have no point. I have no desire to see it at all. Uh. Um, but, you know, uh, infamously, let's you know use Boys Don't Cry for an example, the, uh, the Hillary Swank movie. Uh, there's a really brutal gang rape scene. The MPA had no problem with that. Yeah. But uh, Hillary Swank plays a lesbian in the film, mm. Um, who you know who dresses as a boy, uh, and, and there's a scene in which she gives oral sex to her girlfriend, and it's fine until Hillary Swank comes up and wipes her mouth off, mm. and and the MPA drew the line there. They're like, no, we don't, because you didn't show the oral sex. We're okay with that that you suggested it, but when she wiped the mouth off, it became too real. Um, well, it's interesting, you know, this movie was made during the sexual revolution. It's all about Barbarella doing what she wants. All, pretty much every time, except for, I think, the initial guy. I think she initiates all the lovemaking. The Matmos, I think, is this... If you want to read deeply into this movie at all, I think the Matmos is supposed to be a, a metaphor for a unbridled female uh, sexuality. Because it's what eventually destroys Duran Duran at the end of the movie, but it spares Barbarella and the tyrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, I actually, I wanted to make a comment about yeah. that because that was something I, I kind of enjoyed about the film. Yeah. Um, is that the, the the direct quote the great tyrant makes regarding why Barbarella is saved, and the great tyrant is only saved because she's in proximity to Barbarella, because mm-hmm. uh, it encases them in a bubble, yeah. um, is that the the... Matmus is responding to Barbarella's innocence. That means that the Matmus is not making any kind of judgment call based on her sexuality. It's just how good she is as a person. Mm. It's it's subtle, but I I like that. It's not like she's not a bad person because she has sex with all these people. Yeah. Like that that is not a call that the the Matmus makes. The Matmus makes have you murdered people? You know, like <laughs> are you are you a brutal dictator? Uh, yes. Do you have terrible intentions? Well, I mean, well, the tyrant was a brutal dictator that's true and i but i said she, she was right next to barbarella yeah. i guess so she gets a pass yeah. 
Uh, but I mean, this this is definitely a product of its time. I mean, the the, the comic arrived before the uh, you know the the summer of love and like the, you know that, that sort of the sexual revolution. Um, and the movie kind of arrives right in the center of it. Mm-hmm. And it, it is the most 60s thing you will ever see. Well, ex- with the exception of maybe like one of those Beatles movies. Yeah. Like Help. I mean, but let's talk about the interior of Barbarella's spaceship. Yeah, it's just a big, <laughs> uh, it's like a really hideous 60s carpet all over. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is the fuzziest looking spaceship. It looks very snuggly. It looks like... It looks like the shag vans you would see, like hippies ride around in. But it has like has works of art and paintings, and she sleeps in this awful-looking cellophane bed. Yeah, and it has like a video screen inside that's held up by the statue of Athena, I think. It has the lispiest onboard computer too. <laughs> that's right. It's her sassy friend. Yes, Barbarella. <laughs> Confirm. And like the outside of the spaceship, it's like. It's like this giant pink pink (laughs) sort of triangle, yeah, with uh, these little nubs on the outside. It's so 60s, and even kind of reminds me of, like, a a Mobius comic. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I think... I I definitely think that Mobius had probably seen the works of Jean-Claude Forrest, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that was somebody that he probably looked up to or was a contemporary that he respected. And uh, I think I was going to mention Jane Fonda's performance. She clearly (laughs) knows... Now, this is a very silly movie, and it's it's all every all of her delivery reflects this too, like that line or, or the line she goes like this is much too poetic, much too poetic a way to die. It, it's just the right amount of camp to it. Like her performance really does, uh, just really enhance the movie. And it's not just oh like she's just really hot babe and her clothes are coming off. Like she's genuinely funny. Oh yeah, I mean, the movie is high on charm, and a big part of the movie's charm. Well, I mean, I do want to say that there, there's an incredible level of set design. It's the same level of imagination you see in some of the better Bond movies, mm-hmm. in some of like the Ray Harryhausen movies we mentioned. Like, there's just so much that goes into the set. The labyrinth alone is really beautiful to look at. Yeah, um, uh, I was going to mention but, though that uh, with Jane Fonda, Sophia Loren was originally asked to play Barbarella. And I think that would have completely changed the tone of it. Sophia Loren at the time, you know, she's like Miss Sexpot. Sex and I think she would have played it a lot more earnestly. Like, she wouldn't... I don't know if she'd be as aware that this is a really silly movie as Jane Fonda had been aware of. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and Fonda went on to be a fairly credible actress. I mean, she... She played a lot of big parts after this. Yeah, she was. She won an Oscar a couple of years later for Clue. The year before this, she was in one of my favorite romantic comedies ever, uh, Barefoot in the Park with Robert Redford. You, that's, <laughs> you don't hear me talking about rom-coms too often, but that, that is one of my favorites. Um, well, I think if you were going to mention a rom-com, it would probably have Robert Redford yeah. in it. So it, it uh, Jane Fonda does lend this extra credibility to the entire movie and because it, it seems like she doesn't I mean other than be, you know other than obviously being a sex symbol of her time she doesn't mind being in a campy picture yeah. I mean she delivers a lot of incredibly silly lines and she does it with this grace and with this like sort of winking knowingness uh, one of my favorites uh, is actually the one I, I kind of opened the soft opened the show with yeah. which is um, What's that screaming? A good many dramatic situations begin with screaming. Like, that's how she spot responds to just hearing a scream down a hallway. She She's given a ton of guns at one point, and she's just like, I'm armed, armed like a naked savage. <laughs> yeah, By the way, they do use them well on the, the Leathermen and a couple other spaceships. Like, if this movie had any action scenes, this is about it. I mean, the, one of the most silly, awkward scenes is at the very beginning of the movie, after her striptease in the spacesuit, where she's undressed and the president calls her on that video phone, yeah. and she's like, there, she's clearly naked, and her her naked back is to us, and like the president's like, no, no, don't get up, don't bother yourself with getting dressed, <laughs> and like, and he keeps making like leery comments, like, one day, Barbarella, I hope we meet in the flesh. <laughs> And she's and she's totally okay with it. They even have that really campy uh, way of saying hello and goodbye, where they just put their hand up and say love. Oh yeah, it, I thought it was just a little play on Star Trek. The Earth way. Star Trek: Live Long and Prosper. 
Oh, that might be it. And also the Earth way of making love. Oh, yeah. yeah. It it was probably a little bit of a setup to that, more so. Oh, this is very Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they were like the, 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 just the way they shoot sort of space flight is very like the bridge of a Star Trek scene. Yeah, the bridge of her spaceship with the video finder. Instead of looking at space, like I said, it's a zoomed up lava lamp. I didn't know coming in or out of this how I was, you know, coming into it rather, how I was gonna, how I was gonna respond to it, and I came out just enjoying the um, the kitschiness of it, the the campiness of it, and it just its its willingness to go with exactly what it was given and what it, you know, it, it knows what it is, and it's and it and it goes whole hog on yeah. it. I mean, I, I it, it sort of the the scene with the excessive machine, like, is. If you've seen the Austin Powers movie, mm-hmm. the first one, the scene where he overstimulates the fembot is probably a direct rip of this Barbarella scene. Oh, I, mean, I never thought about that until now. It, it can't be unintentional, because no. it's from that same period they're mocking. Yeah. Uh, and so, I, 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 you know, I'm going to say this is a movie I, I pretty highly recommend if you like these. If you like, if you like, if you like camp, yeah. If you like kitsch, if you can watch. Uh, if you can watch uh, the Adam West Batman show, but think that uh, Julie Newmar in that Catwoman costume could have dealt with a little less costume. I totally agree with you. It's probably make a great double feature with, um, like we mentioned earlier, Danger Diabolic. Like, just these really fun uh, kitsch classics. Or one of the late-era Sean Connery Bond movies. Yeah, or... like, You Only Live Twice, even... Yeah, that's the yeah, that's the one with the volcano yeah. base. That's perfect. This this is very you only live twice, but a, a little sillier. Um, mm-hmm. I yeah, I highly recommend it if you enjoy a little bit of camp in your film diet. I think everybody should get a little camp once in a while. Well, I, I I wanted to say really quickly about uh, the director Roger Vadim. Yeah. Um, now well, we brought we decided to do this movie because of uh Nicholas Winding Refn, the director of Only God Forgives and Drive. Mm-hmm. Uh he's currently trying to make a TV series out of this or a or a movie. He's it's not too clear. We just know he's in the process of writing uh-huh. it with somebody yeah. and and dreaming it up and so they, they, there's really big plans to get this going again. There's been unsuccessful plans in the past. Uh Robert Rodriguez wanted to remake it with Rose McGowan and couldn't get the budget he mm-hmm. wanted for it. Um, and some and uh, Drew Barrymore wanted to star in a remake of it at some uh, point. Jane Fonda wanted to do a sequel in the seventies. Never happened. Yeah. Yeah. These these projects never materialized. Um, but you know, it, going back to what we said about uh, Wending Refn last week, where he's you know he claims that he's a fetish director. Mm-hmm. As a fetish director, the man has nothing on Roger Vadim. Uh, <laughs> Roger Vadim's fetish is showing the world how sexy his blonde wives are. Uh, the man was married five times. Yeah. His first movie, uh, he cast his 18-year-old girlfriend, who he'd been dating since she was 15, uh, Brigitte Bardot, mm-hmm. in the movie And God Created Woman. Uh, it's, I, th- I believe it's in the Criterion Collection now. And my understanding of that movie is it's really just Brigitte Bardot looking sexy in different outfits or in or out of different outfits. For like ninety minutes. That's art right there. There's no real story to it. It's just look how hot Brigitte Bardot is, and sort of um, Vadim's thinking. You know, I want people to know how good I've got it. I'm gonna put my first wife in a movie, yeah. and then and this is a trend that he keeps doing um, because uh, he also made the movie Blood and Roses with his wife, his second wife, Annette Vadim. Uh, Blood <laughs> and Roses is a uh, it's an adaptation of the famous uh, Carmilla Karnstein vampire novels. Uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar with those, they I'm were not. written by Sheridan. Le- uh, they were written by Sheridan Le Fanu. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really famous. They've been adapted dozens of times. Uh, in as films, uh, there's a, there's even a Hammer trilogy based on the character, uh, but the the books predate Dracula by 25 years. Oh wow! And it's uh it's about a lesbian vampire. And fa- that's who, fascinating, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, just just to know that that was that kind of thing was written at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Le Fanu was a really famous um, Irish ghost story writer. Yeah. And uh, so Carmilla, the Carmilla Karnstein stories are his contribution to vampire literature and uh, probably deserve a lot more attention than they got, but might 
might not be as well known in the West, given the um, the homosexual context of the stories. Mm-hmm. And well, uh, uh, but but he, but he adapted that with his second wife, and then the third movie, <laughs> Barbarello, <laughs> with his wife at the time, Jane Fonda. That's right, yeah. his third wife. <laughs> And, you know, and it, it's, it is funny to bring up what you said, you know, where the Barbarella comic strip character based on Brigitte Bardot, but star, but the, the film version stars his third yeah, wife. Jane I don't Fonda. quite know, like, the genesis of how this movie got made, but maybe he saw, maybe he heard that there was this comic that was based on his first wife. I'm sure that, I'm sure that a lot of the thought process was just, this is a great movie to show how sexy my third wife is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But he was, you know, he was a he was a director of sort of soft core sleaze, you know, and of course in, you know, in uh in in Europe that's generally accepted as much, you know, as a as an art film much more so than over here. He's an art. Who's a European Russ Meyer, I guess. Yeah, exactly. He he was a man who loved watching uh, attractive blonde women wander around in different stylish, you know, in and out of different stylish costumes, and you know, at, at least he put them in genre generally, you know, as in Blood and Roses in here. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely want to see Blood and Roses now. Or at least, you know, find a, find a way to look at any of the Carmilla Karnstein stories. Uh, the Hammer Trilogy exists. A couple of them have been brought over here. All right. Well, uh, I think that's pretty much about all the time we have for now. I, I do want to make a quick apology. Uh, you know, I since I mentioned uh, Boys Don't Cry... Yeah. And I said I, I referred to the character as a lesbian, the pro- the proper term, you know, for uh, the LGBTQ community. Uh, for that character was transgender. Oh, okay. so I wanted to make that correct. I haven't seen Boys Don't Cry. So, I know the director that did the Carrie remake that I saw a couple weeks ago. Oh, I'm, I think we're planning to have a Carrie mega episode at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. But uh, but not but you know, funny we bring that up. Uh, next week. We are doing our first Stephen King episode. Yeah, uh, it's going to be Children of the Corn, so not quite what you were expecting, probably. I mean, no. well, there's a gazillion Stephen King adaptations out there. We'll get to the gold later. You know what I'm talking and for, about. And for good reason. I mean, he's a very talented writer, but this is based on one of his short stories. And uh, it's a movie that we thought would be perfect for the fall harvest time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we're going to do Children of the Corn, which is a non-classic but is a movie worth talking about? You know, they made, what, three or four sequels to it. There's got to be something good in it, right? They got a lot of mileage out of one short story. Yeah. Uh, I guess Stephen King doesn't mind the royalties. <laughs> I would And who, who can blame him? Who can him? blame him? Yeah. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, our, that's the episode we have on our slate next. Um, oh, I want to remind the folks out there that we're on iTunes. Oh, yeah. Uh, so please subscribe, rate, review. Let us know what you're feeling about the show. And, uh, share us with um, your friends. Uh, so if you wanna, if you would like to follow us, you know, you can look up Bloodbath and Beyond on Facebook, or you can go to www.facebook.com/bloodbathbeyondcast. X. C A S C A S T as in podcast. Bloodbath Beyond Cast. Excellent. Well, with that said, I'm Bernie Cody. The most beautiful. And I'm Casey Mitchum. To Bloodbath and Beyond. Stay bloody, my friends. Good many dramatic situations begin with screaming.